Hey there, art lovers. Mike Hendley here. I'm excited to welcome you to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast. In each episode, I'll be bringing you along on my journey as I explore what it means to be an artist. But don't worry, it's not just going to be me talking about my favorite pencils and sketchbooks the whole time, although those are pretty cool too. I'll also be chatting with other talented artists about their experiences and sharing some of my own insights and reflections on my art journey. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 94, Painting the Town, Exploring Urban Scenes with Sherry Blaukoff. Hi there, and thanks for being here. As always, I have a few updates, and then we'll get right into that interview. So I thought I'd share a uh, workshop that's coming up. It's put on by uh, John Muir Laws. Uh, You've probably heard the name if you've done any kind of nature journaling. And it is a nature journal educators workshop. This is happening for two days, uh, June 9th and 10th of 2023. So this is an excellent opportunity for those interested in teaching nature journaling. So this is targeting, you know, people like formal uh, classroom educators, homeschool parents, park rangers, uh, adult education instructors, nature staff, uh, scout leaders, so on and so forth. So if you have any interest in teaching nature journaling, I would highly recommend checking this out. I have included a link in the show notes. And if you've ever spent any time with John Muir Laws or Jack, uh, you will relish the opportunity to be able to sit in on this and uh, learn from uh, this wonderful person who's, um, who's, who's really good at what he does, uh, excellent science background, and very engaging as an instructor. So I would highly recommend checking this out. I was an attendee for the conference that was last year, and I really enjoyed it to the point that I will be going back this year. So an opportunity to sit down and learn what it's like to teach nature journaling for two days, I think is exciting. So if this is of any interest to you or someone you know, (laughs) either check out or share the link. I think it would be a fantastic opportunity. So I wanted to mention an app that I've been using a fair bit recently, and the app is called Freeform. If you are using an Android device, this may not be as applicable. Freeform is an app that is built by Apple. It is available in iOS 16, so that is on your iPhone. It's also available on the Mac and the iPad if you're using current versions of those operating systems. And Freeform is kind of, as you may think, a freeform platform to brainstorm ideas. And so it is really just a massively, I'm not sure if it's infinite, but massively large whiteboard that you can drop links and notes and photos. And what I've been using it for is laying out kind of my next few pieces of art. So what I will do is take a number of photos, uh, 20, 30 photos, drop them into a single whiteboard, a single instance of Freeform. And I will drop them in there. And it gives me a chance that if I'm sitting down at lunch or I've got a few minutes and I just want to sketch something, I can go into this and I can see them all laid out. I can zoom in. And then when you're on a specific photo, you can click a little eye and it fully it it goes full screen for you and allows you then to look at that image and you can zoom in even more. So for me, it's been a really helpful alternative to an app I use called VizRef, which is once again, a reference manager. It allows you to put a bunch of photos into a specific view, but VizRef is only available on the iPad. So I wanted something for the iPhone and this app has been fantastic. So if you are working around the idea of I need to have a few photos available, I just want to dive in and you don't want to use Apple Photos or whatever you're using now to manage your reference photos. This is a great alternative if you wanted to, I was working on cat eyes, for example. So I had one of these freeform uh, whiteboards or areas devoted just to eyes. And so I had them all laid out and I was able to move around 
uh, from photo to photo. And it's a fantastic app for that kind of purpose. So I just wanted to mention it. I've been using it since it came out and I've been meaning to mention it. And I've, I have interacting with people when I've done some live draws recently, but uh, I wanted to share that with you just so that you're aware that this, uh, this app has some, some merit in kind of those who are working off reference photos in any capacity with regard to uh, either digital or physical works. So yeah, check it out. Freeform. And it's available for free on the iPad, iOS, as well as the Mac. So this is episode 94. That means we are not far from episode 100. As it stands now, I think episode 100 will be May 28th. So we'll see if that uh, ends up being the date. It might, I may push it into to June, but we'll see. I can't believe that it's been four years that I've been doing this podcast. I never thought really, I think, that I would get to 100 I remember one guest coming on, I, I asked him to come on, I think episode 15, he's like, I'll, once you get to 30, I'll, I'll come on, and, and he, he did, um, but I never really thought I would get to 100. So I'm really excited about this, it's been in large part to you, the listener, uh, who's tuned in, you know, every new episode that comes out, I always hear so much uh, positive feedback and encouragement, and I want to thank you for listening and having this podcast part of your journey, part of your walk, your commute, your painting, your drawing that you may be doing right now. So thank you for including me as part of that and, and these wonderful guests I've had on the show. So I'm trying to think about what could we do that would be special for episode 100. And I would like you to be part of that. So what I would like from you is an audio clip under two minutes about how the podcast has impacted you, or maybe what your favorite episode has been. And what I will do is I will share these clips on episode 100. And so I kind of want this to be about you and about the community that is around the podcast. And so I would love to hear from you. You can record it on your phone. You can record it on your Mac, uh, your Windows machine, whatever you choose. I would ask that you try and make sure the audio is really good. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, listen back to it before you send it off. And uh, if you want, you can also use a tool called SpeakPipe, which is available at the drawinginspiration.fm site under contact. You can actually record it directly in your browser and share it that way as well. And what I will do is I will compile these. I, I don't know if I'll be able to share all of them, but I'm going to share a large portion of these. So I'm also going to include some clips from previous guests as well. So it's going to be a bit of a compilation episode, and I would just love to hear how this, uh, how the podcast has impacted you, how your art has changed in the last four years, and um, maybe what you're looking forward to. And obviously, if, if you, there's an episode that really triggered it for you, I'd love to hear about that as well. I just want you to be part of this. We, we did this together, getting to 100, and I thank all of you, and I just would love to hear from you. So it's kind of early warning. We're into March at this point. So I will remind people as we get closer to 100, but I just thought I would uh, let you know now if you want to send it in the next few weeks, that's great. If you want to wait till, um, you know, into May, that's that's fine as well. I'll probably have a deadline at some point in the future, but I just really want to be able to share this with you. And I think this would be an interesting way to do it. So, so I think that's it for updates. Uh, I've got some exciting stuff coming, but I can't really talk about much of it. So what I would recommend is that you subscribe to my newsletter because I have some announcements coming and I'm going to do it there first. And so if you want to know what I'm talking about, it may be later this week, probably be later this week. That's where I will announce it first. And obviously I will share it on social media as well. So that's it for updates. Now let's head into the interview. 
My guest this week has been on my radar well before I started the podcast. Sherry Blaukoff is a Montreal-based painter, teacher, author, and art blogger. Sherry is a renowned watercolor artist who is best known for her urban scenes. Her unique approach to watercolor painting and sketching has earned her a spot as a correspondent for UrbanSketchers.org. She is also co-founder of Urban Sketchers Montreal and a signature member of the Canadian Society of Painters in Watercolor. In this episode, we'll dive into Sherry's artistic journey from graphic designer to teacher and urban sketcher. We will explore the techniques she uses to create her stunning pieces, her favorite tools, and what she uses as motivation for urban sketching. Be sure to stick around to the end for the homework, which is a mission I think we should all take on. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Sherry Blaukoff. Hi, Sherry. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you for inviting me, Mike. It's so nice to be here. Well, thank you for, for joining me. It's it's wonderful having you on the show. I've been watching your art forever. Um, I joined the Urban Sketchers here in Ottawa a few years ago, and I've had quite a few Urban Sketchers on, and I've always wanted to reach out to you. But honestly, I just was like, I don't know if I'm ready to ask Sherry to come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, I love your work. I love when when I see the subjects you've chosen, especially when they're local to Montreal, which is where you're located, I feel connected because Ottawa is not that different than Montreal. And I just see part of the areas around me and your work. And I'm like, I can really connect with Sherry and and some of the topics that she's chosen as a matter of her uh, subject. So that's so nice. That's so nice. Well, I love talking about Montreal and I love sketching Montreal. So that makes me happy. So you're an urban sketcher. Um, that's a lot of what people see you as, but there's so much more to you in what you've done and what you what you do now and, and your outreach and some of the products and some of the tools and the courses and everything else. But you started life differently, and I kind of want to reach back in time because I always love hearing these stories about how people came to find their creativity and then how they uh, accelerated that at different points in their lives and then possibly how they monetize it. So I kind of want to explore that journey with you. And I'm wondering... As a child, were you the artsy kid? Were you the creative? Was yeah, 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 yeah. I was. I, you know, I won. I won the art prize in high school. I don't know why, because I think we all did the same thing. But I don't. I won the art prize <laughs> in high school, so somewhere in some box, I have a certificate. But I was, you know, I was one of those kids that always like I sat in my room for a long time with a big, big box of Prismacolors drawing. Uh, I was always drawing, and I actually started painting in watercolor when I was about 12, if you can believe it. There was a teacher in our neighborhood, and uh, I went there every week, and I I painted little still lifes and things like that. So yeah, I did paint as a kid. That's amazing. It took me like six attempts, I think, at getting watercolor sorted out. I'm impressed you did it at 12. (laughs) Yeah, it was great. I, I loved it even back then. So it's a long love affair with watercolor. So you won an art prize in high school. Did you go on to university and then pursue it? Yeah. Like, was it set for you? Like, this is this is who I am. This is what I'm well, doing. Well, I, I really wanted to be a painter, but, um, you know, I just wanted to paint in watercolor. But I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine how I could possibly make a living doing that. So I studied graphic design at Concordia in Montreal. And that's, that was my career. I was a graphic designer, so I worked in advertising, I worked in design, then I worked freelance, I had a company with my husband, um, and then I taught graphic design as well. So about, uh, I don't know, about the same time actually that I got back to sketching, I, I started teaching graphic design. 
So that, that was how I, I made a living. When you were doing graphic design, were you still painting and sketching and doing stuff on the side or was it all encompassing? I did uh, until I had kids. And then, uh, and then when I had kids, then I, I had these two really active little boys. And uh, then I just stopped painting. I stopped drawing. I stopped for about 20 years. Wow. And I was still, you know, I, I guess I, there was some sketching when I was sketching out my graphic design ideas, but I didn't really paint for about 20 years. When your sons were younger, were you doing any of the creative stuff with them? Was that part of kind of raising the kids? you know we always did uh creative stuff and we drew and you know one of them draws very well but they were competitive swimmers so mostly we were just like driving to the pool and I kind of wish I had a sketchbook with me for all those years when I sat at swim meets for three hours and I could have drawn all the all the swimmers in the you know in the pool but I, I didn't have a sketchbook then so I don't know I just I put it aside but you know, eventually found my way back to it. I'm glad you found your way back. Uh, for me, it was a discovery in raising our youngest, that, or our, sorry, our oldest. Uh, that's when I discovered art was drawing with her. Oh, and that's great. Yeah, so, yeah. it, you know, that was until I was 40. But, um, and I talk about that a lot on the podcast, but I think it's, it's interesting you mentioned the bit as well about you kind of wish you had a sketchbook when they were younger because I didn't, like my urban sketching goes back just a few years, but I think about the trips to like Newfoundland and all these other places that I visited. And it's like, why yeah. wasn't I into I this know. at the time? I know. Sometimes when I look at my travel photos, I think that was pre-sketching, you know, and, and then post-sketching because I remember things in a different way of places that I've sketched. So it's, it's always interesting to think about pre-sketching, pre-urban sketching. So we'll, we'll get back to that because I have a question around that as well. So you started urban sketching about how many years ago then? I, I started about uh, in 2011 because I was teaching graphic design and I noticed mm -hmm. that my students didn't know how to sketch at all. So they didn't know how to like pick up a piece of paper and sketch out an idea. And when I was taught graphic design, I was taught to sketch out ideas. Of course, this was before computers, before personal computers. <laughs> but we had to draw out our ideas. We had to think about them first and then, and then write them down and look at, you know, composition and layout and figure out what the best idea was. And my students didn't have any experience in that at all. So, um, you know, I, I sort of got them sketching and I started sketching at the same time. Uh, so that was, they, they actually brought me back to sketching. My students brought me back to sketching. And you weren't kicking and screaming that you, you were no, embracing this fully. No, no, <laughs> I was, I was, but you know, I, I, I wanted to, there, there's a sort of chunk that I missed in between the time that I started painting in watercolor when I was 12 and the time I stopped when I had kids, when I was in university and I was studying graphic design, I was fortunate enough to study with someone in watercolor who led me down a different path, and that was Ed Whitney, and he was one of the most well-known teachers in the States uh, who taught watercolor at the time and taught many watercolor teachers. And he lived in New York City, and he was like the grandmaster, and everybody, and he had all his disciples, and every year he taught in Kennebunkport, Maine. And I was lucky because a friend of the family said to my parents, I think I was about 18, and they said, you know, Shari should come with me because I'm going to take a workshop with Ed Whitney. 
And there were many other great painters who were there at the same time, like Frank Webb and Skip Lawrence and really well-known watercolorists who also studied with Ed Whitney. And what was amazing about that, and that is basically what sort of changed my life and the way I looked at watercolor, was that Ed Whitney taught a design approach to painting. So it was all about composition and planning the painting and thinking about really principles and elements of design. And that was what I had been studying at school as well as a graphic designer. So the idea of designing a painting or designing a, a, an ad layout or a magazine layout, uh, these two things meshed for me. They made a lot of sense. So it, all, the, all the critiques that he did uh, and everything that he looked at in your work was basically, is this a good composition? It was never about, you know, what color did you use or did you have the right brush? It was just like, is this a good painting? It was all the thought process behind uh, the design of a painting. Um, so that, you know, th so then I painted for about uh, whatever it was, 10 years, uh, using those principles of, of design in my painting. And then I stopped. So when I came back to sketching, I had this, this sort of body of work and, and chunk of experience that I had from Ed Whitney. And I studied with some of his students like Frank Webb and Skip Lawrence and other people, Frederick Wong. And anyway, I, I just had all that experience. So that was kind of, you know, my ending point. And in that experience, the sketch was always the starting point for a painting. It was never... Uh, the sketch was never the final thing. It was just like this little planning thing. You sketch out your painting and then you do your painting. Interesting. And I'm going to take this opportunity. It's really early on in the interview, but since you've dropped so many names, I'm just going to remind everyone that I take uh, really good show notes. And so I'm going to drop a bunch of these names and links to them where I can find them. And anything that Sherry and I talk about, I'll include in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you're out running or driving or just sitting on the couch or painting, uh, be sure that to remember that these links are in the show notes and come back and check those out because there's just going to be a tremendous amount of information to follow up on with all of this. So just a reminder to everybody. <laughs> so I think that's that's really interesting to have that kind of design uh, focused kind of composition layout because I think that's at, at times it feels like a little bit of black magic when we're working on art is is trying to figure that out like or you know what's going to be the best composition and is is what nature or what what we've made as as humans does it present us what what would look best in a drawing or a painting and i think it's struggling with that and other people saying you should use you know the fibonacci sequence or or the or the uh the or the, the golden rule yeah exactly uh and there's some other dynamic one i can't recall now that is kind of a combination of all of them and uh, so I think it it feels like there's so many opportunities to be a great painter, and there's so many things to know, you know, when you talk about color theory and composition and, and everything, that it can be overwhelming for people. So maybe we can talk about, well, we'll get to that maybe, but talking about how to break that down, to especially urban sketching, urban sketching feels so accessible. It is, it is, and it isn't. I mean, it depends on you know, what you choose to convey or portray or, or what you want to get down and, and what's happening in the scene and whether it's something where there's, you know, a very active scene with a lot of movement or whether you're drawing a static scene. So 
you know, that always is sort of, you know, starting from the simplest and building up to someplace very crowded with a lot of people in it is not, not the most, not the easiest thing. And that's, you know. So can you, maybe for the listener who's not heard of urban sketching, can you describe kind of what that is and what, how that's different than just calling something plein air painting or plein air sketching? Can you explain you know, sure. specifically about what urban sketching is? Sure. So urban sketching is primarily um, working uh, on location and drawing something within a context. Uh, so, for example, even if it's a tree, um, it's a tree within a park. Or if it's a dog, it's, it's, a, it's a dog um, in a room. So urban sketching doesn't have to be necessarily in an urban, or in an urban setting. I mean, I'm mostly suburban. Um, uh, and it can sometimes be uh, just outdoors, but it's, it's always on location. But for me, the added component and the interesting component is because it came from a place of journalism, is that often there's a story in it. So to me, it's sort of telling a story through your drawing. You're, you're on location somewhere and you're telling a story of, an, of a place or of an event. That's what it is for me. And so did you start up the Urban Sketchers in Montreal? Was that part of your uh, endeavor? I started it with Mark Tarot Holmes. We, we founded it together. Okay. Um, he's another uh, Montreal artist and urban sketcher. And um, we met, well, we met through Urban Sketchers and uh, we sketched together for about a year. And then a lot of chapters were starting up all over the world. And we said, well, why can't we do this? So we founded it uh, together. And it, uh, last year, it was a 10 year, 10 year anniversary. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Montreal so many times, it would just be a lovely city to. And that's another thing, like I've been to Montreal so many times, and I've not shown up once with a pad and pencil and pen. Well, you just... have to you have to come here and you have to call me and we'll go sketching together. And I'll call Mark Tarot Holmes too. I'll absolutely do that. It's uh, I love Montreal. It's a beautiful city. I mean, it. There are areas, you know, they probably could spend a little bit more money on roads, but it is a beautiful city. I feel really at home in Montreal. Have yeah. you ever looked at all the orange cones that I draw um, in my sketches of Montreal? Yes. People always say, <laughs> "Why do you have all those orange cones?" And I said, "Because there's always some repairs going on here." <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, almost as many as, as shrubs. Like there's always something going on, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful city. And and so, uh, you know, kind of around the urban sketching, is there a large community now in Montreal as part of the Montreal Urban Sketchers? Oh yeah, you know, when we first started that, it, there were I think we had seven people at our first uh, meeting, mm -hmm. and it grew and grew. And Mark and I ran the meetings for about five years, and then we sort of handed it over to a group of um, uh, very dedicated people who had more time and I was traveling more so I couldn't be here for the meetings. And now I, there's, you know, 40, 50 people that come out monthly. And at that exhibition, that 10-year exhibition, which they held in the fall, uh, there were whew, probably over 100 people there. It's amazing. It's a huge, huge group now. Very active. Uh, the formal meetings are once a month, but there's all kinds of informal things that happen and People are very friendly with each other. They get invited. You know, sometimes there'll be concert performances, dance performances, and they'll invite the urban sketchers or uh, on the mountain, Les Amis de la Montagne uh, at Mount Royal Park invites urban sketchers to come and sketch for a day. I mean, there's, there's different museums uh, also that invite them. 
so it, it's uh, it's very there's been a lot of press too so it's very active and uh, very well known that's awesome and I, I think maybe if you can explain for a typical kind of sketching event what that looks like because I think some people I mean many artists that I know are introverts and so the idea of going out and meeting a bunch of people they don't know and then exposing your art to them it can be a bit scary so maybe you can explain kind of what happens in a typical urban sketching event Sure. Um, you know, the fantastic thing that I've always uh, loved about urban sketchers is how welcoming they are and also um, how, uh, how generous and uh, how they share their tools. And, you know, this is from the first symposium that I went to to every other urban sketching event that I went to. An event like in Montreal, when they do a monthly meeting, they'll meet at a given place. They have a blog. They post where the meeting spot is. And then everybody gathers and they sort of outline what the plan for the day is. So the last one that I went to was in uh, uh, a park downtown in Montreal and I went in the fall. So we met at a subway station. Uh, we walked to the park together. Everybody sits around, do chit chat. People are drawing. Then people either bring their lunch or, you know, go, ha go have lunch somewhere in a restaurant come back, draw for a few more hours. And then at three o'clock, they, they sort of have told you where the meeting place is um, for the end. And people just put down their drawings and they, they, you know, there's no, there's no critique. There's nobody saying, oh, that's good or that's bad. They're just admiration for everybody and camaraderie and how wonderful it is that we can just sit together and draw and appreciate this place. Um, and so uh, you know, people take pictures and then you get to see everybody's drawings after. And um, it's just a very encouraging place. So, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to join because I don't know what to do. But, you know, when you go to these things and there's a new face, people will come up to you and say, hi, welcome. And, you know, that's what's fantastic about it. So, you know, in your city, you don't have to be shy to go to a place because people will be welcoming for sure. And I've been traveling even in places where I've posted where my drawings are. And urban sketchers from that city will contact me and say, hey, you know, you're here in our city. Can you come and draw with us? It's wonderful. I've seen that so much. And I've been to a couple events here in Ottawa with the urban sketchers. And uh, I have to say the first event I went to, it was so welcoming. And everyone's introducing themselves. And we, we were drawing the Shadow Laurier because they were going to do this horrible remake of the Shadow Laurier. So this was kind of in support of the beauty of the Shadow Laurier and doing it right, not making it look like a prison with this expansion. Yeah. And so a bunch of us were there and it was the first time meeting Urban Sketchers. And I had the opportunity to, and, and I just got my kit together. I just built my gurney easel and I just was like showing up with all my shiny new tools right in public. And, um, I, I was sitting in the middle of a field because I wanted to get a good shot and it started to rain. So one of the urban sketchers came up and held an umbrella over me so that I could sketch. And I was like, I just felt like a rock star. I felt like I, I'm with my people, right? Oh, and, uh, that's, that's so typical. That's so typical of what people will do. Yeah. It was just beautiful. And then to your point, that ending where people just lay down all your books and there's no commentary except, you know, that's great or whatever. It's not a critique experience. It's really, as a group of people, look what we made today. It felt yeah. like kindergarten. Like, look what we did. 
And nobody's saying anything, right? It was just wonderful. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is that often people who are new to urban sketching will feel very self-conscious going out to sketch on their own. So safety in numbers, I mean, you know, you go out with a group and then you, you start gradually to lose that fear of drawing in public, which is something that a lot of people find very hard to overcome. I've talked about it and I've done urban sketching a few times and I always talked about, you know, people come by just when you're at the ugly phase, you know, you're doing the sketch and it's, and I keep joking that I, I want to have like a clock with a dial on it and 90% of the clock says ugly phase. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that I could just set it. So when people walk up, it says ugly phase and they just know. I want one of those. When you make that, I want one. <laughs> Because it is, people are like, oh, what are you drawing? And and you could tell them, you could tell it's like, look, I've just been at this for 10 minutes. I'm just starting out. Why don't you come back in an hour? You, you feel apologetic about, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I just started. <laughs> I, I was once drawing on the street and a guy came up behind me and I was just sitting there by myself. And he said, you know, it'd probably be better to take a photo. <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. nice. So I was, it was definitely in the ugly phase too. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, on that point about photos, maybe you can speak to this about, you know, using a photo to do an urban sketch versus doing it in person. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, it's not considered an urban sketch if you're doing it from a photo because uh, it has to be done on location. There's a lot of sort of controversy about that. But, but basically, if you're on location, you're just looking at the scene. And so doing painting from a photo is just something different. It's, it's not an urban sketch. It might be an urban scene, uh, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not really considered as something that qualifies to post on the Facebook group, for example, or, um, you know, label somehow as an urban sketch. It, has, it really has to be you're sitting there and you're looking at the thing or the scene or whatever. Yeah, I've heard people say that and I, I agree like it's and, and I think that maybe leads to my next question and you know that it is an active scene that you're looking at. I'm just curious when you're looking back at some of the works you've done, like do you hear the sounds? Do you smell the smells? Does it become an engaging experience looking at your past works? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the best thing about it. I, I All the great memories that I have like drawing in a market in Cambodia and you know, just sitting there at a table and watching the women squatting over these bowls of chickens and uh, vegetables and fish and uh, like that, that, you know, I'll never forget that. And if I just took a picture of it, it wouldn't be the same. So it, it's often not the final sketch that is so important, but it's the memory of the experience of sitting there and of smelling the smells. And, and often of talking to people, because I like to talk to people. So if people come up to me and they look at my sketch and they want to see what I'm doing, uh, you meet really interesting people. And, you know, I've, I, I've met people who have asked me to design, I designed a kid's book based on somebody who saw me sketching. Uh, you know, I, I've had these kinds of encounters where, you, you know, you just wouldn't have that if you didn't open yourself up to uh, listening and looking and just you know, being, being there. And uh, that's, 
the best part, I think, of urban sketching is, and, and for me, you know, when you're talking about photos, and I don't know, you, you, you might have been uh, waiting to ask this question later, but for me, I learned to paint on location. So the first few times that I went at anywhere on location, both with my first watercolor teacher and then also with Ed Whitney, I painted on location in Maine, hmm. in Kennebunkport and Ogunquit in that area. So for me, the, uh, the excitement, all the excitement is looking out at a scene and trying to figure out how to put that down on paper. And working from a photo was something that I worked very hard to teach myself to do. I, I have a hard time painting from a photo because for me, all the decisions about composition have already been made through, through a lens and that lens is not my eyes. So uh, there's something very static about about that kind of thing, you know. So for me, the the excitement is the 3D world, um, and opening up all, all your senses to that, and then trying to figure out what to distill down onto your paper. And if you just have a photo, there's none of that excitement is there. You know, the light's not changing. There's no movement through the scene of people or of wind or of sun or you know any of that. So the excitement is is in the in the urban sketch or in in a plein air painting of, of being in a space. Right. And where you are in Montreal and where I am in Ottawa, it's not always a great time of year to sit outside and sketch or paint. Right. <laughs> so how do you, beyond traveling, how would you, how, like, are you doing it in your car in the winter? Are you? Oh yeah. I'm a, I'm a serious car sketcher. And uh, for, for the first 10 years of my urban sketching career, I was a teacher in a CJEP in a college so I would have a schedule where maybe I would start at 10 and finish at 2. So there'd be an urban sketch. I sketched every day uh, and posted something on my blog every day for three years. So uh, it was, that was over a 1,000 sketches. So I would either I would leave extra early and do a sketch on the way to school, or I would do a sketch on the way home all year long. And, and uh, I mean, school year is basically a lot of that is winter. So I'm a pro at sketching in my car. I have a whole setup. Not, not a, I mean, it's not, I have a whole way of working. It, it's my most comfortable way to work. Like the steering wheel is my best easel. And having the stuff just to the right of me, like my water's in the cup holder for the, you know, in the car, the coffee holder. And uh, my palette is on the, on the passenger seat because I'm right-handed. And if you look in my car, there's so much cerulean blue and like splashes of <laughs> color. It's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. But that ha is how I have, you know, the, like the sketching spots are always where the best parking spots are. Uh, so my view is always like a slightly lower view than if I'm standing because I'm sitting in my car. I'll have to, uh, maybe at the end of this, I'll share a picture because I interviewed Captain Tom uh, yeah, listen to that. Ago. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if I don't know if I included the photo, but we we interviewed from inside the, my truck, and I had my I have a, a gurney easel, but I have a way to attach it to my steering wheel, and oh, it, it was it, it's a really convenient way. I agree, like sitting in a vehicle and just sketching. I do it now, like if I go pick up. I've often talked about finding those nooks and crannies in your day to create. And so if my, I go pick up my daughter at university, I'll leave half an hour 
an hour earlier so I can go to a park nearby and I just sit and I will sketch. Sometimes I sketch what's in front of me. Sometimes I, I do use a photo because I'm working on uh, like a lion. We don't have lions yeah, in Ottawa anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I do do, I go down to, there's a park nearby called Strathcona Park and, you know, there's seagulls, and ducks and everything else. And it's finding those nooks and crannies in your day, as you said, you know, as a teacher, the, the beginning, the end, trying to find yeah. that space, right? Yeah, and I would draw my students a lot. You know, they're, they're do, writing some quiz or some exam. I'm sitting there, they don't realize that I'm doodling <laughs> and I'm drawing them. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I'm curious then, like if you're traveling and you're traveling, you know, with, with your partner or with your kids or whatever the case, like are there times when it's like, okay, I, I, just leave me alone for four hours or six hours because I got to go do my sketching thing. Is is that always a balance? Like regardless of where you're traveling, it's like, we know, we know. You have to go over yeah, and sketch yeah. for a while. Is that yes. kind of an understood thing? That, that is understood. <laughs> um, but it's not usually four to six hours. I can usually manage to do something pretty quickly in an hour. Okay. So um, often they're, they're really patient um, and uh, they'll go off and do something while I'm sketching and come back. And, you know, I don't want to miss the whole family day. So um, I try and fit it in wherever we are. And, you know, I, I especially like it if we're on a beach so that we can all just be sitting there doing our own thing. And while they read, I, I draw. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's always, it's always part of wherever I am. I, my, my friends, my family, my immediate family, they're all very, <laughs> very understanding. They know the sketchbook is going to come out. They're usually looking like, where's your sketchbook? How come you haven't taken it out yet? <laughs> I remember my, I think it was like my first time sketching. It was on a beach and I was sketching the cliffs and the sand and the water. And I thought I was just being so brilliant. And it was like, okay, we got to get going. Okay. And I closed the book. And the paint was still wet. Oh. So I, <laughs> I, had, I had brown clouds on the left side oh. above the beach. And it was like the only time I've done that. But uh, after that, I've learned to carry an extra piece of paper that I slide in. Yeah, so you that, put it in. Yeah. There's lots, lots of tricks. <laughs> That's it. So I want to maybe get into some of the tools that you use. Because I think ultimately what I've seen with the urban sketching I've done is everybody sits down and it's like, Oh, you've got the Stablo easel. Oh, what is that? And what, what kind of stool? Everybody talks about the tools. Right. And so I'm wondering what, what paper, what sketchbook, what size sketchbook are you using? Because I've spoken with some urban sketchers that use like very large, you know, 20 inch, 30 inch pieces of paper. Some use very tiny sketchbooks. Maybe if you can speak to the paper and then we can get sure. into the, kind of the paints and how you sketch and that kind of thing as well. Well, because my experience is in watercolor. Paper is very important. And so I've, I've, it's taken me a long, long time, all this time, in fact, to find my very favorite book, which I just found very recently. And that's a Hannah Mueller 100% cotton sketchbook. And it's just beautiful paper. I started using it um, in the summer and I tested a little because I was going to teach in Europe and I wanted a sketchbook that would be great for ink drawing and also great for watercolor. And it's an A4 size, so it's sort of eight by 11 or, yeah, it's a little narrower than eight and a half by 11. So it's, it's, it's pretty wide. And there's a, there's a, I have a portrait version and a landscape version. Because it has 60 pages, I sketched for a month in Europe and I, I didn't even finish the book. So it's, it's a hardcover book, which I love. And um, it has 
paper that is just textured enough. So it takes the watercolor really beautifully. The, you know, I always look at um, whether the saturation is good, the color saturation, like does it keep the color bright, which it does. And, um, and, and then also, is it fine enough that if I draw with my favorite pen, which is a platinum carbon desk pen, which has a very fine point, um, does it eat away at the, at the nib? And it doesn't. So I can do a very fine drawing and then get, and then put a great watercolor wash on it. And it also takes the pencil beautifully. Like it, it, it's soft enough because it's 100% cotton that it, it creates like just a beautiful pencil line, like a soft, it's not scratchy in any way. Just so nice. And, you know, I'm not saying that as a plug because I'm going to make money, so I don't sell the sketchbooks. But it's just taken, like, a lot of testing over all these years. to And it and it's a new book, so I never was able to test it before because it just they just came out with them. Oh, really? And is yeah. it – so you say it's a little bit textured. So it's not what – like, are you saying it's not what you would consider a typical cold press? Like, it's a mix between – It is cold press paper. It is cold press paper. Yeah. Okay, but it's not as rough as some cold press? It, right. It's not as rough okay. as, for example, if I do a bigger painting, I might work on Arsh, 140-pound uh, cold press. That is a rougher paper. It, it, okay. It's just a little drier. It's just, I can't explain, but it's just not as um, soft. Like a Fabriano paper is a little softer. So this sketchbook is a bit like the softness of a Fabriano paper. Okay. And what's it like hitting that first page, that first white page of paper? Like, does that stress you at all? No, no, it doesn't stress me at all. But I try to put something in there that takes the pressure off. Like, for example, when I'm going on a trip, I, I like to incorporate some lettering. Like, my background is graphic design, so I, I like to do lettering. I don't write a lot of journal stuff in my sketchbooks, but I, so I'll, I'll, you know, maybe put some stickers on that first page and then write where it is. And then I'll go on to the next page and then start and then start there. And I kind of work around the book. Like I, you know, it's always nicer to work on the right side of the, of the book, especially when you start, because the left side is, has that, you know, you're practically just working on the cover of the book. You don't have any paper under it. So right. I work on the right, but then I, I go back and I fill in with smaller sketches on the left side. So I do a lot of little vignettes and little things. And when, I, when I'm going on a trip, I like to kind of draw the full experience. So I like to draw people. I like to draw uh, landscapes. I like to draw architecture. Uh, uh, I like, I like drawing, recording the plants, uh, the birds, things like that. So I, I like to kind of do a scene and then fill in around it with all kinds of other stuff. That's wonderful. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to have to check out this book now. I have so many sketchbooks and I, I, some are really good and some aren't great, but I just love them all. It's just wonderful. Like I think part of being an artist, especially a, someone who urban sketches is you have to be a good collector. Like <laughs> there's yeah. so many options out there. <laughs> you also have to be rich because we're constantly buying supplies. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Is there, I don't want this to feel that it's inaccessible to people because I don't know how much the Hanumulite is, but I'm sure it's not inexpensive. Uh, right. People can get by with a normal, a normal, uh, an average watercolor sketchbook. Correct? Yes, and it, definitely. And also you don't have to work as big as I work. True. So because I work on a big surface, but you can work on a, you know, a five by eight with good paper, or you can, I worked for many years in an eight by eight square format, which I like a lot too. 
And then I often worked across the page so you can get an 8 by 16 if you want to do a panoramic view. Right. So I would say that if you, uh, if you can, try and get, if you want to work with watercolor, try and get the best paper that you can, but maybe get a smaller size so you don't have to get that big. Uh, th there are lots of good books on the market, but for me, because I sort of throw a lot of water on it, I want to have good quality paper. Do you feel the paper is more important than the paint, like in the sense that you want oh, to yeah. get good, yeah? Okay. Oh yeah, you could get you could get really good results with student quality paint, or you can buy you know some kind of uh, little kit from even from the dollar store. But if you have a good drawing, like a nice ink drawing on good paper, and you just put cheap paint on, it'll still be a nice sketch. But if you have bad paper, and I can't tell you how many sketches I've ruined because I've just used bad paper, you will always regret the bad paper. But the paint is not as important, I think. Even a brush is not as important. Hmm. And so if we consider kind of the layers up, when you're uh, composing your, your, your sketch, mm -hmm. um, are you doing that in pencil and then coming in with ink? Are you going straight to ink? How are you working with that? Uh, I do a bit of everything. I love, if I, if I know that the, the sketch that I'm going to do is kind of sh big shape based, in other words, not a lot of, like if it's a landscape, let's say, with a lot of sky and a few trees and a bit of foreground, I may not do pen because it's, it's a lot of watercolor and I don't really need the pen. I could just do a pencil line. If I'm doing an urban scene and I want to build up a lot of texture and surface on buildings, bricks, roof, roof lines, uh, a lot of little people, texture in the ground, then I love to use ink because ink builds up the structure quicker. Um, sometimes I go directly to ink unless there's tricky perspective. If there's tricky perspective and I'm not an architect, so, so getting the perspective relatively right is something I work very hard on. And then I'll put some pencil lines in first and then I'll go in with ink. But I won't do all the pencil lines and then go over everything with ink because that's really boring. And I, I think that someone who goes straight to ink has a more lively drawing than somebody who does it and builds it, does all the, you know, the lines and everything in, in pencil first. So I think it's a more exciting drawing when it's straight to ink. Even if there's mistakes and you go over them, it's a drawing. And that's what makes it exciting and interesting. Yeah, I sketched I've sketched a lot straight to ink recently I should say recent the last year and it's really liberating it it's, is it, it I, is. I didn't think it would be but it is like you messed up move on like just yeah. Yeah, just yeah. moving forward yeah yeah it's I, I like the spontaneity of ink and and are you using uh like I use a fountain pen uh I use a micron so what kind of pen are you using or pens do you use to do your ink work well, like I said, I, I like that uh, platinum carbon desk pen because it has a, a, a sort of flexible point. A lot of a lot of urban sketchers work with a Lamy pen, but I find that nib too stiff. So I like a, I like a sort of softer nib. So I like that platinum carbon desk pen. Um, I also have a big, fat, heavy Confucius uh, Fude pen that I also love. And yeah, I have the same one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, and then I, I work with, um, I used to work with micron pens, but I find the tip wears out too quickly before the ink dries out. So now I, I like the pit pens. Okay. The pit artist pens, the, the, the XS and the S. Okay. That's that's sort of my go-to 
Um, okay. the, the platinum carbon desk pen is made for desks. So it's not really made to be carried around. So if I carry it on a plane, it usually sort of leaks all over the place. But there are fantastic pens, and I use platinum carbon ink, which is wonderful. And um, I, I use cartridges, and I, that's what I love. You know, that's fun. Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I love that ink. I mean, because it's waterproof, right? So you, yeah. can, you can throw it down and and uh, hit it with watercolor fairly soon thereafter and i agree that you know i so i tend to sketch a lot on hot press paper because i i just i like to be able to do detailed pencil work or ink or watercolor yeah. and it's a much more it's a much different experience but yeah i would agree that using a, a micron pen on watercolor paper you're just asking for kind of an early departure of that pen because it's yeah, it's really the, the, vicious that nib will be gone and i used to use the zero zero five i think and or zero zero eight and it would just be like destroyed so yes. i gave up i wasted a lot of money on those pens that were still good and i had to throw them out because they had no nib left so you're coming with paint afterwards is there i, I mean it, maybe it's less about the type of paint and maybe more about your palette are you limiting yourself to a palette and maybe maybe you well, love a paint yeah i, I have i have a little travel palette that I've used for many years. It's about the size of a phone, and it has three little wells in it so I can make different mixes. Um, and I have, I think, 22 or 23 colors in there, but I never use them all at once. You know, I'll, I have my sort of go-to colors that I use for mixing skies or things like that. And then I have all these other little colors like Naples yellow and lavender and turquoise and bright red or bright orange that I use in urban scenes to kind of create a focus in the sketch. So uh, I like to I like to start with a lot of transparent color and then come in with those little dots and spots of opaque and dark and bright in the in wherever that area of focus is in the sketch. Yeah, Naples yellow was something I discovered recently and I just, you know, it's it's nice and opaque and it's a very interesting color. I had no idea. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I, I use it a lot now. I use a lot of Naples yellow and I use a lot of lavender too. It sort of does the same kind of thing. It's a, it's a quiet color, but it can also be an opaque color. So it can go, can make beautiful wash underneath something, but it can also sit on top of a dark. And that's why I like playing with it. What kind of two or three colors could you not live without? Oh, uh, Windsor Newton burnt sienna. Windsor Newton cerulean blue. Those are uh, those are the ones I buy in like the, the, you know the volume size, and uh, probably uh, <laughs> uh, probably maybe like a primary yellow, like a Hansa yellow. And are you loading these into palettes? Like, are you using it ever out of the tube, or most of the time you're just refilling a palette before you go out, or a, a pan? No, I, no I, I've never used pans. Um, I, I like oh, okay. fresh color. So I, I fill oh, my okay. palette and then I let it dry for about three days. So all my little, all, you know, that travel palette that I have is customized. I've glued little pans in. It's made for 12 colors and I've glued another hundred in there and jammed them all in and then stuffed them with color. But I, I fill it and uh, a filled palette with half pans can last about a week when I'm urban sketching on location somewhere. So I don't have to carry tubes with me when I travel. Okay. I'll, I'll just carry one filled pallet. Okay. And then I'll come home with a lot of empty wells. <laughs> nice. So you, you mentioned Windsor Newton. Uh, is that your brand that you typically go for? 
No, I don't have a brand. Okay. You know, I have some Daniel Smith colors, some Holbein colors that I love, some Winsor Newton colors, and um, some M. Graham, Sennelier, you know. Sometimes it's whatever's on sale because uh, <laughs> paint is expensive. Yes. And sometimes, you know, like I said, I'm brand loyal for a few colors, but the rest of the time, like a cobalt blue, if it's on sale with Holbein somewhere, I'll, that's good with me. And... You know, you've got the uh, the binder and Amgram is like honey, right? Yes. And Senelier you, is honey. And Senelier is honey. Do you do you mix them? Do you find the honey is an issue ever? Yes. Ever it's often, okay. a, yeah. The, the, the Amgram are much better if I'm just working in studio. When I'm traveling, there's certain colors that'll just, they'll just run all over the palette, especially if you go to a, a warm country. So you don't want to be you don't want to open your palette and find out that, you know, turquoise has leaked on top of every other color and you have no other palette with you. I've also learned, like I painted in Santa Fe last year and I learned that I'm used to painting in a humid place. Montreal, like Ottawa is very humid. We're used to, you know, semi, you know, very, it is very humid here. So then I get to Santa Fe and I open my palette and all the colors were dried up and cracked and falling out of the palette. So you also have to adapt your palette for different places. And I learned that some earth tones in Windsor Newton, you just can't use in dry climates because they just dry up too quickly. Oh, wow. And I never knew that. Yeah. I wish I had been warned. (laughs) So this is your warning, people. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful. Yeah. I, I've not painted in that kind of environment, but now it's going to be locked in there. I'm going to know better. Yeah. <laughs> Especially Raw Sienna. That'll just be like a hard rock by the time really. you open your palette in Santa Fe. Because the next question I had for you is around gouache. And some of the gouache is really awful when it dries. And so I'm wondering, do you use gouache? I do use gouache, and I love gouache. But when I'm using gouache, I either... Uh, then I carry the tubes and I squeeze it out right uh, fresh. Um, or I take a little stay wet palette, which has the, that little sponge in it so that it stays nice. Or I have another little palette that I use with a, and I put my own sponge in like a, a damp sponge. So that's how I use that. But you have to be careful with gouache because sometimes in the st- those stay wet palettes, uh, it, they go moldy. Yes. So the best way with gouache is really to put it out fresh. Yeah, I have a couple that I have in my palette. I have, well, a white, um, but I find that some of the other colors, they dry horribly. Some of the other ones aren't so bad, but there are some colors that just, as soon as they dry, like the, uh, it's like a lime green, it just yeah. falls apart. Like it's yeah. Just... And then what happens too is that you have to add so much water to reconstitute them that you don't get good saturated color. Right. So what I do with white, I don't, I don't carry uh, white gouache. I carry titanium white watercolor in a tube. Always. It's in, my, it's in my pencil case. And I don't put it out on my palette. I just, when I want little highlights, I just dip my brush right into the tube of paint. Okay. So that I don't have to put it out and dilute it. I, if I want it pure white, I just go right into the tube. Do you ever go to like a jelly roll to get white or are you mostly yeah, using yeah, it? I have, yeah, I have two, uh, two widths of jelly roll. And then I have a tube of white also. Okay, that's cool. Um, So we talked about paint. We talked about paper, uh, brushes. Are you using, like I think I saw on your site, but I I don't know what you have now, so maybe I'll just (laughs) let you speak. 
Well, I, I, ha I have a, a brush sickness. <laughs> I buy way too many brushes. <laughs> That's what I have. I need a cure. But I, I have a favorite, and it's, uh, my favorite comes from Rosemary. Uh, it's a travel brush that's just a small, round, sable, beautiful point. And, uh, you know, you can put the brush back in its cap, and it stays nice. But the thing is, I'm very, because I paint, you know, I'm pulling paint out of those little half pans, I'm kind of abusive with the brush, and I jam it in there. And, you know, I do all the things you're not supposed to do with a, a sable brush. But I do it, and this brush lasts so long. Like, I, I used it for three years all the time, and it still had a good point. So I'm kind of a fan of this one brush, um, although I have a million others. And these are the travel brushes you break in half. and Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I have one that is uh, a Da Vinci rigger, like a rigger liner, like a fat belly, and then it goes thinner. And uh, it's a Da Vinci Casaneo. And that's for, especially in urban scenes, for like calligraphic marks and power lines. I draw a lot of like electric poles and power lines and rocks and things. So it's good to have one fine brush too. But you, re you really, I have a very small bag when I'm not teaching, when I'm just out on my own. I have a very little messenger bag with two Nalgene bottles for water, uh, usually two pencils, a, a pen, my little watercolor kit, a couple of clips and my sketchbook. And, and I, you know, I can put that on, on a bike, on the front of my bike. I can attach it to my back for walking around a city. And that's really all you need. I mean, we all have too much stuff, but you really don't need a lot. Uh, you, you, know, you don't need all the colors that I have either. You can get by certainly with six. Yeah, I think I have 10 reds. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I just haven't decided on what I need to liberate from the pan. So it's, exactly. it's tough. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, you know, when I'm on my own and I'm sketching in a market in Montreal, I have a really small kit. That's all I use. Yeah, I've, I've been playing a lot with uh, the the aqua brushes where you know you get the water in the mm -hmm. in the, the casing and just because it's so convenient that i've been kind of forcing myself to learn how to paint with them and it's been challenging but it's been really nice because i don't have to worry about kind of the water bottle and all that kind of stuff and i i have the same uh, affliction <laughs> addiction <laughs> with brushes it's like, oh, Rosemary Co., I didn't know you had these red dot ones. I don't have yes. that one. Maybe that'll make me a better painter. I'm going to get exactly. two of those. Exactly. Yeah. So, the, so the water brushes, I don't paint with a lot, I have to say. But I do carry them when I'm going to a museum. And let's say you, you're drawing at a museum and you can't use anything with water. So I just keep that in my bag. And I'll, I might draw with a water-soluble pencil. And then I go to the cafe and I put a little water on it. Oh, nice. Um, I also use it for, yeah, I also use it for uh, airports where, you know, you can't bring all the water. I mean, I could refill my bottle, I suppose, in an airport, but uh, the water brush is really convenient for, um, for when you're traveling and you're sitting on a plane and want to finish a sketch. Yeah, and it's, it, they, they take some break-in time. You kind of need to get paint into the, the bristles for them to start releasing water so easily. yeah. And because uh, I, I was using a really tiny one and then I thought, well, maybe I'll change it up because it looked kind of like it was done. And then I got, it was a Pentel um, a water brush and I, I love them, but I got a new one, same size. And it was like, what's wrong? It releases too much water. And I realized I'm accustomed to what it's become. And so yeah. now I have one that I have to train to be less liberating with its water. And, yeah. But it, it does take time to kind of get used to that. It does. And the Pentel are good ones, but I'm so used to, 
the, the brush that I have that mm-hmm. um, I can kind of tell even by weight if there's enough water on it. Like I'm so used wow. to the weight of it in my hand because I've done so much, you know, sketching with it and putting enough washes on skies and things like that. It's like I can just feel from the brush if it's wet enough. Have you ever done any digital work? Have you ever done any urban sketching in a digital format, like iPad or anything like that? Well, I, I have an iPad and I draw in Procreate all the time, but I do okay. it, I use it mostly at home when I'm drawing at night and I, you know, I just want to draw, but I don't feel like getting out all my stuff. But I have to say that for me, I think the experience, the tactile is so important of having paper. Like I just love paper and I love feeling like I like putting an ink line down and seeing when it's wet and then it dries. Like, I just love how that looks, you know, from a fountain pen, like of the wet ink and then just seeing it sink into the paper. There's something so beautiful about that experience of like putting a mark on paper. Um, And also I taught for all those years and I worked for all those years on a, in Adobe Illustrator and Photoshop and InDesign. So to me, that, that's like work, you know, I associate digital, digital drawing is like some contract that I have and anything I do for, my, for myself, I want it to be on paper, you know, so I like drawing in Procreate, but it doesn't have the same, the same satisfaction of touching paper. I, I, do, I do it, but yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I, I, I love Procreate. I use it all the time. I use it for composition and for planning and for brainstorming, but, uh, it's, yeah, there's something really satisfying about it being on paper. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you've been in a lot of places, urban sketching is there, and you talk about beautiful Montreal is what's kind of the favorite place you've been to, and maybe it's a commentary on the location or the people. What do you like? Where do you want to go back to? Oh boy. That's a hard one because everywhere I go, every new place is my favorite place at that moment Uh, because there's sort of a discovery that is a process when you're urban sketching and that process of sort of discovering and figuring out what the best places to sketch are and how to figure out the colors. Like for me, that's a big thing. You know, what are the colors that I'm going to use to convey this place Um, so I I always fall in love with wherever I am but for places where I would love to go back to I'd love to go back to I taught in Singapore and then from there we went to Cambodia and Thailand and I just love that and I would love to go back to Asia I'd love to go to Vietnam you know there's just so much to see and I'd really love to go to Japan so you've never been no, never been, but my, my favorite pencil comes from Japan, and it's a pencil from, from Muji store, and I just love it, and there, I just, there's something about the aesthetic of, you know, everything about Japan, so I haven't been, but I would love to go back to Asia to draw. Yeah, I'd also love to go to Morocco. That's another place that is high <laughs> on my list. Right. So Japan or Morocco, if you're listening. Yeah, exactly. You can invite, <laughs> invite me. Jeremy. Yeah, send me an email and invite me. <laughs> that would be cool. So has your style changed in, let's say, even the last 10 years in what you've been doing with watercolor? Because some of your works are less about urban sketching and more about capturing an environment. And so I'm wondering, have 
you've seen your work change. I mean, you've, you said you did like a thousand drawings over uh, a very short period of time. Do you look back and, and think, oh, I can see how I've changed, how, how I've rendered things differently? I think just through practice, I think, I hope my drawing skill is a little better. Um, I, I certainly, it, that's something that I work on all the time. I work on just getting better at drawing getting faster at drawing, being able to put things down a little more accurately. And the thing that I work on the most is people drawing, because that, that was always sort of my, you know, the thing that I avoided. I didn't, I really did not want to put people in my urban sketches because they moved and I didn't know how to record them and I didn't know how to put them in as they were walking through a scene. But I've practiced that a lot. People in cars, people in cars all the time. And I force myself and I sit down and I say, okay, how am I going to get people into this scene? Because I remember doing an urban scene very early on and someone said to me, where are the people? Because without people, an urban scene's kind of, you know, sterile. So that's the thing that I work on the most is just like, how can I make these people look less like cardboard cutouts? And so I think my style has changed. I don't know if my style has changed, but I mean, my work has changed because I try to put more people everywhere I go uh, in any scene. So, you know, if you have people uh, coming in and out of the scene, are, are there people types that you go towards because that person's not there anymore? Uh, you started them? Yeah, I, I learned a lot from Mark Tara Holmes, who, who I was my first urban sketching friend. And he taught me that when it, you're drawing people in a scene, so you're drawing someone, you draw their, I usually start with the shoulders and the torso, and then they, they move away. Uh, someone else will come back into the scene, sort of that same size, and then you just continue from there. And my first initiation into drawing people was uh, when I went to the first Urban Sketchers Symposium in Santo Domingo in 2012. Uh, I went as a participant and I took five different workshops, and each of them was based on people drawing. And we had to, you know, follow people down the street and draw while walking and following people. You know, things like that, like very sort of intense initiation into people drawing. And, you know, the, one of the things, another great urban sketcher, Melanie Rhyme, who lives in New York, um, she said, just watch a person. Like, let's say uh, I was watching three taxi drivers and they were standing there, and she said, she said, don't draw, just watch them. So they shift to one leg, and then they go back to the other leg, and then they come back to the first leg. So she said, you just wait. So they're on one leg, you draw that leg. Then they shift weight, they come back to that first leg, you continue your drawing. So there's like a lot of techniques that I try and remember that I, I learned from these great urban sketchers who draw a lot of people, is to just, you know, be patient. But there's also kind of a, a memory thing that you go through where once you've drawn enough of them, mm -hmm. you sort of know how big the head is or where the arm is going to be or how far the hand is, you know, in relation to the waist or the leg or, you know, how big the feet are. So after a while, you do get better because you just remember because you've done it a hundred times. Right. And just on the, on the point about drawing a torso and then adding someone else's um, 
you know, legs and all that, it's, it's, and you said a hundred times, I started thinking, well, you know, you may have 10 people in your photo, but that's actually a composition of 200 people. There are many more people in your photos than you've actually drawn. Yeah. And uh, th that's kind of fun. That, that is a great way to look at it, right? Is that, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, you're looking for that story and, you know, you don't have to have the person with the blue pants because the person with the yellow pants walked in. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah. And, and so, so sometimes if you just, you know, I was drawing, I was teaching in Greece this summer and I had some days to draw on my own and I was drawing at Hadrian's Arch and I was watching all the people come up and do selfies. And, you know, so once you get uh, one person doing a selfie, you sort of know the position of the arms and where their phone is. And then you can just, it's pretty easy to draw another one who comes along because you remember what you did with the first one. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of the same with people sitting. Uh, there are certain key things you look for, like how the head hangs over the body and the chin is usually, uh, you know, people, people's heads aren't like lollipops, right? There's an overlap of the head and the torso. So I'm just sort of always quickly looking at that and trying to figure out, okay, how do I get that one key part of the body that shows the position or the relationship between the face and the hands. And for all those years when I drew my students, they were always looking at their phones. So I always did like the head and the hands first. And then I put the body in after because the, 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 the key to that whole uh, pose is where the phone is. So you do a lot of teaching and You've done, you have online courses that people can take, uh, and you do a lot of in person. You're coming to, to my city this summer and doing a course here as well. And I'm wondering what, I mean, was it logical for you to go from teaching graphic design to teaching urban sketching and teaching watercolor? Yes, uh, because what I love in the whole process is the teaching part. So the first day that I taught in a college, I, I just knew that I, I love teaching. I love trying to convey an idea and seeing that someone understood the idea and was able to do it. So that's, that's the part that I love. Um, and the, the thing that I love best about teaching urban sketching is being on location and uh, teaching people how to see, how to see a scene. And so the, the idea, I mean, it was a very easy transition from teaching in a college to teaching sketching because it's just, I love, I, I just love sharing whatever it is that I know with people. What do you think you've learned about urban sketching and teaching it? I, I guess I've learned that whatever you do as an urban sketcher um, the process is, I, I mentioned this before, but that the process is as important as the result. So if I can share with people to, I don't know if this is answering the question, but if I can share to people to just relax and enjoy where they are and enjoy the moment, then I feel I've kind of been successful. It's not so much as, you know, getting the, getting the, uh, the two-point perspective right for me. That's not the important part of the process. The important part of the process is uh, conveying uh, an emotion or a feeling of how you feel about a place. And part of that is just enjoying being there. So if I can share with, with them to, to feel comfortable and just capture what they feel about the place, what, not to draw what I draw necessarily, but to draw what speaks to them, right. what makes them happy about 
seeing something, then I feel I've been successful. Do you think you can detangle Sherry the teacher from Sherry the artist? Do you think they're intertwined and that's the way it's going to be? That's always the way it's going to be. <laughs> that's I, You know why? Because for 10 years... Uh, and it has it goes back to having a blog i mean when i when i got back to sketching in 2011 i i started a blog almost at the very same time that i started back into sketching and the component that i was always thinking about when i was sketching was what am i going to write about on my blog so i was always writing about my process or writing about why i was you know the either the why or the how why I'm drawing this or how I'm drawing this. So whatever I do now, I'm always thinking about, well, how can I explain this to somebody else if I had to? So is this something that I'm going to make into a course? Is this something that I would ever have to share in a workshop with somebody? Um, They're completely intertwined. So teaching has kind of changed your view of your art in that way. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. 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 How can I, you know, I'll, I'm doing a painting and then I'll think, oh, should this be a step-by-step? Should I take pictures as I'm doing it so that I can put it on my blog? You know, for 10 years, I, I didn't teach, I didn't have any online courses. So uh, in s- some ways, I always had some kind of little step-by-step thing or here are the colors that I use. There was always a, a kind of teaching component on there. And with the blog, I mean, I love... I love that James James Gurney has a blog. I love that you, Sherry, have a blog. I think it's a wonderful way to reach out and, and educate and, and own your content. You know, the blog isn't your Instagram posts, right? It is your content on your site. Uh, and you still post to your blog. Is I do. I still love it. That's. I think that's fantastic. Do you think we should all be doing this? I love blogs and I read them. And what I love about them is that there's actually some depth to the content. So I think uh, if you're interested in writing about your process or you have something to say, then absolutely. You know, I still, I, I love writing mine and I love reading my friends who blog. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's good to, to be able to tell that story about the piece. You know, we're, we want to buy something because we hang it on our wall and we tell the visitor to our house, our guest, you know, this yeah. is this is inspired by this by this artist and she was doing this or he was doing yeah. this right yeah. yeah 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 it's um I I really think we need to be thoughtful about telling the stories about the pieces we work on because some of that's like it'll 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 be buried with us yeah and, and we can yeah. paint about it but if we talk about it that's yeah. it it adds so much more value to it right it does I think so and with your online courses. Uh, you do a lot of these and you're using a platform called Teachable. Is yes. that what you use to host your courses? Yes. Because yes. I, I, you know, and the reason I bring this up is I'm getting into this now and I know other artists, I tell our artists, like as soon as you learn something, you can teach someone one step behind you. Like always think about when, like you can teach the day after you know something. Like there's always going to be somebody behind you that can benefit, right? I totally agree. <laughs> and but there's so many platforms out there, you know, there's there's Skillshare and there's this, that, and the other thing. And I'm just wondering if you can speak to Teachable because I've heard a lot of people using Teachable. And I'm wondering, are you happy with it? Um, and has that been a good platform for you to kind of sell these courses for you? Like when we talk about monetizing what we do as artists. 
Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a, a great platform for selling because that is something completely different. But it's a great platform for creating. It's been fantastic for me. I, I started it. It was sort of um, I had been wanting to create my own courses, and then at the start of the pandemic uh, is when we did the first one. I had already done two with um, Craftsy, so I sort of knew how to set them up. And then okay. since we were stuck in the house, um, I started doing them with my husband. So he films and edits, and I do. And we have a we have a background in. My husband is a writer. And I'm a graphic designer, so we also have that marketing background. Uh, many, many years of marketing other people's stuff, uh, <laughs> so we have that experience. And so Teachable is great because we—it was a, a sort of a steep learning curve of how to actually create the courses and then figure out how to do the videos. My videos are all done in in sort of segments so people can watch for 20 minutes, a 20 minute segment, and then watch again and paint along. It's not one long, like three hour video. It's all done in little, uh, in little sections, but they have a great interface. And what I have to say about them is that they are fantastic with customer service. So um, if you have a, a problem, uh, they have great outreach. So they have like round tables for creators. They have a lot of courses for instructors. And you basically control your income. So you decide. It, it's, I think it's a little different on Skillshare. Okay. Um, so for me, it's been fantastic because uh, I, can, I can create, I can put all the PDFs that I want and all the images. And the other thing that I love is that students can share their work on there. So that's an important component for me is having the back and forth. I don't want it just one way. I want to be able to... Uh, put the courses out there and then have students be able to ask questions on the platform and also be able to post their work. And so that's been great. In terms of marketing, that you have to do on your own. You know, you have to have mailing lists, you have to go on social media. So it's not really marketed, but it's, it's hosted there. And then the marketing is a, a whole other learning curve. Right. It's not like Skillshare where you're buying into like a marketplace of, of courses right. you're, you're left up right. to. You, yeah. People have to find you. I mean, people have to find me and then see my courses. Nobody's directing them to me. Yeah. And I think we all struggle with, you know, that whole idea of, uh, you know, how many Instagram followers you have. And but, you know, the mailing list is probably probably the, the better thing that people need to focus on. Like you have a strong mailing list. Yes. And that that is the key. You have to have a good mailing list and you have to, you know, keep, find ways to get people on your mailing list. So that's the key. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not a particularly good marketer. I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a kind of person who sends out like a thousand emails to get somebody to buy a course. It's just, I, I, th I think it's very Canadian. You know, it's like, here's the course. If you want it, here it is. You can buy it yes. if you want. There might be a sale, but, uh. I don't know. I'm, I'm not that good at marketing. I just hope that people find the courses maybe by word of mouth or stuff that I put out on social media. But, you know, I don't do a whole lot except have a good mailing list. Are you planning on doing a bunch more courses? Has this worked out to the point where you're like, you know what, I'm happy with this. We're doing more. Oh, yeah. You know, it was hard after COVID to sort of find a balance between because I like in-person teaching, too. So it's hard to find a balance between in-person teaching and making courses. But I think we found it, and um, we have another course coming out on 
you know, next week, uh, and then another one planned after that. So I've always got a few in the pipeline. And I often, and the, and the other thing that I like about uh, combining travel with making the courses is, is that the travel inspires me for new courses. So I'll go to a place and then I'll think, oh, I can make a course out of sketching something here. Nice. Nice. That's wonderful. And I'm very lucky because I have, I have a good and wonderful and loyal audience and I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think we need to do more to curate that, make sure that, uh, you know, we're sharing our story, we keep them involved, keep them updated. And, I, you know, I, I probably need to send out more newsletters than I have, and I haven't. But uh, that's one of the things I'm turning around this year, so... Yeah. yeah, there's a fine balance, I think, between annoying people and giving them good content. Yes. Right? Yeah, I agree. And and I think that, you know, the problem I had last year with the newsletter is I kind of overcommitted in what I was putting in it. And I thought, you know, it just was hard to maintain that with the podcast and my day job and everything else to have kind of a format that was informative and interesting and long. Yeah, and, and, not, and not onerous, but you want it to be good, genuine content, but you don't want it to be something that you dread doing because it's so long. Right? Yeah, yeah, it just becomes yeah. so much work, right? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. Is there anything that you haven't done that you'd like to try when it comes to creativity? Is there? Well, I, you know, I did dabble in oil painting and I loved it because it's so rich and beautiful. But it takes so much time, and it takes so long to dry, and it's not very portable. I mean, it, it is portable for people who know how to do it, but I don't have all the right equipment, and I'm just always getting paint all over my clothes, and it's just, you know, <laughs> it's, I'm so used to watercolor and the process of watercolor. So I'd, I would like to do more, but I'm a little impatient and um, a bit of a slob when it comes to the paint. So I think I'll just stick to watercolor because it's washable and neat and portable and it dries fast. I love pencil first. I love watercolor. I love ink. I love mushroom ink, which is something I made and paint with, which is kind of fun. But uh, I've been playing with acrylic and that's been great. I'd love to try oils, but it's the smell and all that. But then I came across this artist who takes an Altoid case and mounts a little panel, a wood panel on the top of the case. And then he puts in like a few, you know, dabs of, of color, like six, you know, little dabs of color. And he paints with oil inside the Altoid case. And I'm thinking, wow, that is close to what I need because it's tidy, it's small, and I, I could try oils that way. And so he does kind I of, love that. he does kind of urban sketches. And what, what he does is he sells his work. And I'm going to try and get him on the podcast, but he sells his work. But when you buy his work, you get the piece inside the Altoid case and the case, which is the palette underneath. So you get the oh, whole thing. I love it. You have to put that in your in your list of, uh, uh, what, what did you call it? What's of the your show list? notes? Your show notes. Put that in your show yes. notes so I can see. And you have to tell me what mushroom ink is. I have no idea what mushroom ink is. <laughs> I um, So I talked about it in the last podcast, but... There is a, a a mushroom around us called the Shaggy Mane Ink Cap Mushroom, and it it kind of you know typical kind of mushroom shape, but kind of taller. And they come out around August September, and what happens is they deliquesce the 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 mushroom. It looks like a long skirt, and the skirt rolls up over like a day, and it it produces this black kind of dark umber ink, and and then it disappears. And if you take the caps off while they're deliquescing 
and you put all those ink caps like in a margin container and throw it in your fridge for four or five days and then you push it through a tea diffuser, you'll get this beautiful brown liquid and then you can boil it for a bit to kind of get rid of water and then you add 20% vodka to it and then you can paint with it. Wow. And you can let it dry and it becomes like uh, like a palette, like a, a pan, like it dries to like that kind of, and then you can reactivate it with water. And, you know, I still have some here. This is I'm a little mason jar of mushroom ink. Wow. And it's fun because when you paint with it, it smells like the woods. That's amazing. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. When you come to Montreal, you have to bring the mushroom ink and then we'll go sketching. <laughs> okay. I've been meaning to load it into a brush pen because I think that would be kind of a fun exercise. Um, I was going to send some down to uh, to Paul Heaston and uh, Lara Call Gastinger, two previous guests, but um, I, I didn't make enough this year. I couldn't find them. And then I wasn't sure if I could legally send it across the border. <laughs> it sounds kind of kind of sketchy, no pun intended, but it does yeah. sound kind of weird. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's considered like a fruit or a vegetable, and I'm not supposed to be shipping organic materials, but maybe yeah. I just call it ink. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, to, to your point, I, I'd love to try oils as well. And I just came across this artist like a few days ago, and I was like, that, it seems like a small, it's a small commitment I could make to trying oils. I love that. Yeah. I love uh, that. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> Do you have... And I ask this because I, I, I've been curious about your answer, but, you know, we have a lot of rituals around things that we do in life. I'm wondering with an urban sketcher, do you have any rituals around the work that you do? Like when I used to write, I would light a candle and I would get into the mood of writing. And I imagine with urban sketching, it's much harder because you're in these different environments. Do you have any kind of rituals? And I'm thinking rituals around where it's, it's just a hard day. It's a hard day to create and you have to spin up a ritual because that pulls you into a process. Do you have anything like that? Well, I don't know if this counts, but I mean, for me, it's just getting into my car and just parking. That's the ritual of like, hmm. because now that I'm, I don't teach in a college anymore and I work mostly at home, I have to push myself out the door, right? It's harder because I'm not on my way somewhere. So I have to, on a hard day when I have a lot of work, I'm working on creating courses or, or you know, answering blog comments or, or uh, creating a new uh, content for workshop, upcoming workshops. So I can get stuck at the computer and I want to draw. So if I just push myself out the door and then sit in my car, there's a very calming something because I'm in like a bubble so the ritual of being in the car, of having no sound, of having the only thing that can bother me, especially if I put away my phone, of I, I can have nothing bothering me. And uh, I put my phone on do not disturb. And then I'm in that little bubble where all I have to do is look through the windshield and draw. And I have my pad in front of me and I have a pencil. And that is a complete, just um, almost like a meditation of just being in that space. I think that's why I love the car. I mean, I, I never actually realized this until you asked this question, but that is absolutely my little safe space of drawing. Yeah. Is, uh, was your car purchased with urban sketching in mind? My car was my dad's car. Um, and I, I inherited it. And okay. it's, it, it's a, a car that was like, you know, sort of an old guy's car. 
and it's <laughs> it has very comfy seats and um it's just i sit back in that car and it's just like i'm in another zone i've painted in that car for so long it's probably since like 2016 oh wow uh, and i won't give up the car like even if <laughs> you know i would repair it for another 20 years just cuz i could get to sit in it and it's my drawing car Well, you would miss the cerulean blue racing stripes inside and everything, right? So, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. It it's nice that you uh, that you have a bit of your dad with you too, if you're doing that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah. And my dad, my dad, uh, you know, he he passed away in 2016, but he read my blog every day, and every day he would call me and just say, you know, oh, I saw what you drew today, so I knew where you were, and hey, were you here? Were you there? Like he's trying to figure out where I was and what angle that I had, and he reads the story about the beer truck that parked in front of me and that blocked me, and you know, so I couldn't see anymore. Like he just he loved it. He was a fan. That's awesome. Are you still writing those blog posts for him? Um well I have his I have his photo on my desk and uh so kind of yeah. yeah yeah that's awesome. I I'm I'm so glad that you've continued doing this and uh it's it's good it it uh, you know I'm curious with with 2023 and it's been a you know a tough couple of years with the pandemic and everything like what kind of goals do you have for this year and for next? Do you have any uh any things that you're moving towards? I mean you've been doing this for so long is there what pulls you forward? Well the the goal is always to paint more to do more to do you know my i sort of split my time between urban sketching and doing larger paintings and i i always feel like i never have enough time to do the larger paintings so i have goals to just spend a bit more time doing larger paintings in studio um and just exploring and playing with watercolor more cuz you can you you're sort of always learning with watercolor no matter how long you're doing it you know there's always something new to learn um so that's one goal i traveled a lot in 2022 so sometimes my goal is just to stay at home more <laughs> <laughs> not you know people say where are you going next and then i i have i have a you know six workshops that i'm about to give and i see people just starting to go blank their eyes glaze over so i realize that i've probably been away too much so i have a goal to be at home a little bit more this year and paint more that's cool well you're going to be in our neck of the woods in july so that'll be nice yeah, too yeah i'm excited uh, about that yeah that's yeah. that's kind of cool I always get to kind of the point of asking people about homework. I, I love that uh, people are engaged with the podcast and they listen to kind of the stories and the tools and all the things they want to try. So I'm wondering, Shari, what would you recommend as as a bit of homework for the listener to try? Sure. Well, one of the things that I've loved most in the past 12 or so years that I've been doing urban sketching in Montreal is that I've seen my city changing a lot and there's been a lot of neighborhoods that I've drawn that have been gentrified that were, you know, old like Griffintown in Montreal is an old Irish neighborhood and it used to have all these old workers homes and now it's all condos but I drew it before it changed and I think that every place has uh signage or buildings that are sort of heritage things that end up getting you know either taken away or knocked down or whatever so so the homework is really to be conscious of 
changing places in your city and maybe do a drawing of a place that you think might change or might not be there next year. It could be, it could be as small as, as a sign on a building that's like a vintage sign, um, or it could be a building itself um, or a park or just something that you think won't be there eventually, and your drawing will be a recording of it. That's a really good idea. I uh, I never really thought about that, and I visited kind of the, the town I grew up in uh, last year, and I was thinking about that the whole time. Like, there's there's parts of this place that that are gone that I remember being here, and there's parts of this place now that will be gone in 10 years and 20 years. And yeah, I, yeah, I it's never amazing. really thought about that. There, there's um, a, a painting that I have that's, um, that I did of the wetlands um, that are around here. And those are also disappearing. So it doesn't have to be an urban space. It can also be a natural place that um, might be disappearing too. You know, I wanted to record those wetlands, so I did many paintings of that place. Yeah, we're losing a lot of that um, throughout Canada, uh, specifically exactly. in Ontario. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's good to document what's in front of us because, as we talked about earlier, it's that richness richness of experience and kind of looking back at what you've done and and smelling it and hearing it and, and feeling it and uh, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to thank you for coming on, but before we go, I wanted to maybe if you can direct people to where they can find you online, where you're most active. Absolutely. There's uh, many sources. Uh, my blog is sherryblaukoff.com, and I try to post on there a couple of times a week. I also have sort of the archive of all my work is on blaukoffwatercolors.com. So that's where I have, you know, you'll find sketches of different places. There's galleries of work, so you can look at the work that way. I'm also on Instagram at sherrysketcher. And my online courses are learn.sherryblaukoff.com. That's awesome. And I recommend looking at uh, Sherry's workshops because she has them all over the place, all over the world, uh, in the U.S. and Canada and France, I guess, is sold out. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the list of in-person workshops is on my blog, and I'm always updating it. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sherry, for coming onto the podcast. This has been a tremendous pleasure in talking to you. I feel like I'm going to have to go do some urban sketching this weekend. I've been in the house in the office too too long, and hopefully, this storm will provide some interesting uh, new textures to the land <laughs> with the storm that we're both going to experience in the next. You need day. a car. You need a car bubble too. Um, to go and sketch and I've got to do the same thing but thank you so much it's been so nice to talk to you Mike wonderful thank you Uh, I'm wishing you all the best for 2023 I hope you have a chance to spend more time at home I I hope we have a chance to uh, to connect over the summer and uh, once again thank you so much for sharing all of this Uh, you've you've inspired us all uh, directly or indirectly, and I know the person listening to this is going to be uh, pretty wound up about getting out and doing some urban sketching. So thank you so much, Sherry. Oh, you too, Mike. Okay, take care. Show notes, including links to everything Sherry and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 94. If you enjoy the show, please follow, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcasts for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.